to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. So I want to introduce you to my son, Roland. He is four years old, and he's very sweet and very cute. Um, But at night when we put him to bed, he likes to reassure himself that if he has a nightmare, he can come into our room. And so he asks us, Mommy, Daddy, if I have a nightmare, can I come into your room? And we look at his sweet little angelic face and imagine his lonely four-year-old terror in the middle of the night, and our hearts break. Yes, Roland, we tell him, if you have a nightmare and you are scared, you can always come into mommy and daddy's room. We like to think that we are kind, comforting parents, that we've really got this parenting thing down. He will not be scared by fretful dreams and a lack of comforting snuggles. But our son has ulterior motives. No longer than three minutes after laying him down, turning off the light and retreating to the kid-free refuge that is our room, in comes little Roland, telling us quite seriously that he has had a nightmare and needs to be in our room. Roland does not yet grasp the concept that you have to actually be asleep first in order to have a nightmare. He's not even actually scared. He mostly knows that we watch movies in our room after he goes to sleep, and he wants to get in on that movie action. We are being outsmarted by our sweet four-year-old. But going into your parents' room when you have a nightmare is not a new thing. Roland didn't originate this ingenious idea. How many of you used to go climb in bed with your parents when you dreamt about dinosaurs coming to eat you or monsters or ghosts? I definitely did. Now, my scary dreams as a child mostly involved things like vampires and werewolves, which I'm not really sure like where I got those ideas because we didn't really watch scary movies. Maybe it was Scooby-Doo. Although I can't say that this looks all that frightening now. A purple, nice green sweater. <laughs> not very scary. Um, but my sister Becky and I shared a room for most of our lives, and one of my chief fears was that she would roll over and look at me in the middle of the night and be a werewolf. Instead, she married a werewolf. <laughs> my brother-in-law is very hairy. <laughs> Um, I love you, Josh. But regardless of what the fear was, whenever I got scared in the middle of the night, I would make the dark run down the hall to my parents' room, clutching my blankie and my pillow, and I would make this little nest for myself beside my parents' bed, where I would be much safer than in my bedroom that probably had a werewolf in it, Becky or otherwise. And there were four of us growing up, so whoever got scared first got the prime spot, which is right here, mommy's side of the bed. Um, Because mommies are much better at protecting you from monsters than daddies are. Now, second kid got the couch down here. Um, It is a lot comfier place to sleep, but if you notice, it is on the opposite end of the bedroom, so much further from the aura of safety emanating from my parents. You could either get a good night's sleep, or you could be safe. Your choice. Um, Then poor number three and number four kid who showed up in the middle of the night got the in-between spots in no man's land. Neither safe nor comfortable. Um, My mom talks a lot about how she used to wake up in the morning and she'd have this little sea of children on her bedroom floor that materialized in the night. And now I experience a very similar thing. 
except my children come in my bed and Aiden snuggles pretty aggressively. Living in my parents' room after having a nightmare made me feel safe and comforted, as I assume it would my son Roland if he were actually afraid anytime he came in. But I distinctly remember the most terrifying dream that I had as a child, and I was at a complete loss of what to do. Was it a gigantic snake dream? No, it was not. Was it gigantic spiders? No, it was not. Was it gigantic sharks? No, nothing gigantic, but I am afraid of sharks. Um, and if I were these guys, I would be terrified. Basically, in this childhood dream I had, I came downstairs in the middle of the night to get a glass of water, or whatever dream Megan was snacking on. And as I peered around the corner into the living room, my parents were sitting there watching TV. Except they weren't my parents. They were cat monsters. Scooby-Doo strikes again, I'm sure. Did you guys ever see that movie? This is from Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. It was a scary show. We watched it with our sons this week, which was perhaps a bad idea because now they will have these crazy cat monsters in their minds. Um, but yeah, probably where this dream came from. But anyway, as I was dreaming this, I had this like thrill of horror, like that sweeping sense of dread when you realize that the good guy has actually been the bad guy the whole movie. Um, and it was horrifying. And I had this panic of, oh no, what am I going to do? Who can I run to when my safe people are creepy cat creatures and are clearly not safe at all? I woke up in a dead sweat and I was paralyzed. Normally, when you have a bad dream, grab your blankie, grab your pillow, make the run down the dark hallway to your parents' room where you would be safe in their comforting non-cat creature presence. But now, my safe people were the monsters, the ones I was afraid of. Where do I go? My sister Becky? No, you know, she's going to be a werewolf. Totally out of options. So who do you run to when you feel afraid? Hopefully when you were growing up, your parents were a place of safety and comfort and were not actually creepy cat people. So you felt safe running to them in the middle of the night when monsters were under your bed. But I know that that's not always the case. Sometimes our parents were doing the best that they could with what they had at the time, and that didn't always lead to a sense of safety or security. And even if you had really great, safe parents, all of us have had relationships with other people that weren't necessarily safe or close or trusting because of the brokenness that we experience in attaching to others. Now, last week, um, Andrew watches through the three insecure attachments that you can experience with people. And maybe you found yourself resonating with some of those characteristics. Maybe you've had some fear and uncertainty in your relationship with your parents or others, some pain or hurt, some distrust or some distance. And it's really good and important to evaluate these areas of brokenness in our relating, not in order to place blame or fault on people or to become angry and bitter, but instead to acknowledge the reality of where we are and where we're coming from and how some of our broken attachments with others can impact our attachment to God. So that's why we're here this morning. When we move out of the realm of just our parents or our caregivers growing up or authority figures in our lives, these uncertainties and fears and hurts and distance can be mirrored in our relationship with our heavenly father, causing distrust and fear and uncertainty. We bring God the same questions that the small versions of ourselves asked our parents when we were afraid and uncertain. Am I safe? Are you good? Will you provide for me? 
Are you trustworthy? Can I put my faith in you? Who do you run to when you feel afraid? I want to ask you, is God's room safe to you? Or do you find yourself stuck in your own room, alone in the middle of the night, afraid or distant or hurt with no one to turn to? Because that's not the way that God intended it to be. So we're continuing our series, Attachment Disorder, which is taking the psychological theory of human attachment and recognizing the deeply spiritual implications that attachment has to our relationship to God. God designed attachment. Just like we were designed to have secure relationships with others, we were designed for secure relationship with God. And so the mechanism that governs our attachment to our parents can really help us understand how we can attach securely to our heavenly parent, the God. And securely attached to God is the place that will give our hearts peace, that will calm our fears, that will let us know you are safe, you are okay. So I want to give you guys a brief recap. Um, last week, Andrew walked us through attachment theory. And this is the super helpful graph um, that he used. And we're going to hang out again here today. So to reorient you, there are two axes. And that makes four different quadrants. And um, these are the quadrants that your attachment can fall into. Um, the first axis is degree of anxiety. So this horizontal one right here. And just to be clear, this is not talking about the clinical diagnosis of anxiety. That is a totally separate thing. A different word for this axis could be fear. Um, so you could call the two ends of the axis calm, which is low anxiety, or afraid, which is high anxiety. Now the second degree, the vertical one, this is the um, axis of avoidance. So you have low avoidance and high avoidance. And you could call those two ends close or distant. Um, so if you have a preoccupied attachment style, you are close, but you're afraid. If you have a fearful avoidant attachment style, you are distant and afraid. Or if you have a dismissing avoidant attachment style, you are calm, but distant. Now, I know that that was like a super fast recap um, and not much detail, but Andrew did an incredible job walking through each of these disordered attachment styles and giving biblical examples through the Israelites of how these can play out in our relationship with God. So if you missed last week, I highly encourage you to go back and to rewatch it through our Facebook page to really understand these three quadrants um, and how these disordered attachments can play out in your life. But Andrew ultimately left us on a cliffhanger. We know what these three disordered attachment styles are like and how we might see different shades and notes of them in our own relationships with God. But what about this last quadrant over here? Andrew didn't tell us much about that one. And that's because that's what today is about. So what is this one right here? This attachment style is called secure. It is both calm and close. But what attachment theory calls a secure attachment, the Bible just calls faith. Now this might sound a little bit strange to you at first, um, because oftentimes we're introduced to faith as this really like ephemeral, super spiritual state of feeling that just means that you like believe something really hard. 
And yes, there is an aspect of belief to faith. But unlike we're often led to believe, that belief doesn't just arise out of thin air. Faith is not something that you assent to or an attempt to believe more or trick yourself into feeling. Faith is an attachment and it grows and works and functions in much the same way as a secure attachment style does to God. So consider babies when they're born. This is my daughter, Catherine, when she was first born. She's pretty cute. Uh, now, when Catherine came out of my womb, she did not look at me and just decide to believe that I was her mother. She's not a duck. Children don't just like blindly imprint on the first large creature they see. Oh, no, she saw the doctor first. Why didn't someone cover her eyes? Now she believes the doctor is her mother. No, that's ridiculous. Um, our attachment to our parents is not formed by this simple belief or assent to biological maternity or paternity. Children can attach to any caregiver because attachment is not just belief or intellectual assent. It's a relationship, a small set of practices, a repeated give and take over time, this slowly built body of knowledge that generates predictability, reliability, and trust. And our faith is the same way. It's not just a belief or an intellectual assent. It's a relationship. It's an attachment. It is a lived set of small interactions that create predictability, which creates trust, which creates faith. Now, one of the best descriptions of faith in the Bible comes from the book of Hebrews. Um, and this is what it says in chapter 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And when you look at this verse on the surface, um, it can sound just like belief because we often interpret it as a mindless confidence or a baseless assurance. It's this, well, I'm just going to believe it's true. But that is not at all what God is talking about here. That view comes from the idea that our spirituality and our physical experience of life have nothing to do with each other, which is not true at all. We are embodied spiritual creatures. God made our bodies and God made our bodies spiritual. God has wired us biologically and spiritually so that the way our spirituality works is intimately connected to the way our bodies and our minds work. What we do, what we practice, the emotions our bodies experience matter to our spirituality. Something super spiritual sounding like faith actually cannot be separated from the physical experience of our bodies. And I know that right now you're probably like, this feels really left field, Megan. Like, what does this have to do with faith at all? But it's really, really important for you to understand this. And so I want to give you an example from my daughter, Catherine. Again, this is the verse we're looking at, that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, which we are arguing is not just about belief. And this is what I mean by that. So in the morning, Catherine cries. She is hungry. She needs food and she can't get it herself. She's not yet a year old. You know, at a year, she'll be responsible for her own peanut butter sandwiches. But right now we'll relent and feed her. Um, now, when I come into her room in the morning, as soon as I pick her up, she stops crying. Why? You're like, Megan, that's not very surprising. Babies stop crying when their parents pick them up. But why? Let's dissect this a little bit. 
Catherine is still just as hungry as she was before I picked her up. She still has no food, nor can she see any food. She still is unable to get it herself. The hunger still gnaws at her tiny baby belly, and she is still not satisfied. Why in the world would she stop crying when the need she was crying about still has not been met? It's because she has faith in me. And this faith is not a groundless belief or a pie in the sky hope that things will get better. When she was three days old and I picked her up, she did not stop crying until that breast was in her mouth because faith is not just a belief. Her faith in me comes from a lived set of small interactions, me feeding her every single day of her life, which creates predictability. When mommy comes to get me, she will feed me, which creates trust, which creates faith, confidence in what she hopes for, delicious, delicious milk, and assurance about what she cannot see, the breast hidden in my robe from whence the milk flows. This is faith, confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. But it is not a confidence or an assurance based on nothingness. It is a deep groundedness based in a lived set of small interactions, which creates predictability, which creates trust, which creates faith. Our lived experience, our physical experience matters to our spirituality. Having faith in God is not about believing more or trying harder or simply trusting more. It's about attaching securely. And that is not just a belief. That doesn't happen in an intellectual vacuum. To develop that secure attachment with God, you have to invest in a lived set of small interactions, something you actually live and do in your physical life that create predictability, which creates trust, which creates faith, confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see, even when we can't see the solution or the hope yet. So how do we do this? How do we move from insecure faith to secure faith, from insecure attachment to God to a close, calm attachment to God? What do these lists out of small interactions actually look like that form the basis of our confidence and our assurance? Let's take a look back at the quadrants. So ultimately what we wanna do is to move down on both of these axes. We wanna end over, over here in the secure quadrant, which is low anxiety. So you wanna go down this way towards calm and then low avoidance. So you wanna go down this way to close. Um, and just trying harder is not going to make you less afraid or less distant. The three-day-old Catherine didn't just need to believe more that I would satisfy her hunger. She needed a lived set of small interactions that created predictability, trust, faith. So let's start with this first axis, anxiety. What lists out of small interactions can move us from feeling afraid to feeling calm in our relationship with God. Um, now, last week, Andrew pointed out the core beliefs about God that underlie these two anxious quadrants. It's these two right here. Um, so in the preoccupied quadrant, we struggle with the idea that God is not faithful. And in the fearful avoidant quadrant, we struggle with the idea that God is not good. And these are both fearful views of God, that he won't come through, that he doesn't actually have my best interests at heart. But neither of those are true because Jesus tells us, which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? 
If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. God is faithful and God is good. But I could spend the rest of this message telling you that God is faithful and God is good. But just hearing that is not going to change your faith. I am sure that you have heard these things before because faith is not just a belief or an intellectual assent. Faith is a lived set of small interactions that provide the basis for our confidence and assurance. And so we need an embodied practice to ground our faith. So this is an example of how a lived set experiences grows our faith, our confidence and our assurance in what we cannot see. This is Pace, um, this cutie right here. And Pace had very little access to food or water for the first two years of his life. He was incredibly thin and was eventually removed from his home by Child Protective Services and placed with a foster family. This is his foster mom right here. Um, and his foster parents immediately noticed Pace's extreme anxiety around food. He was very, very high on the anxiety axis. And so to assuage this deep fear, they gave him free reign over food. They set up a snack shelf at his level in the pantry where he could access food any time of the day. If he wanted goldfish right after breakfast, he could grab goldfish right after breakfast. If he wanted a box of raisins five times a day, he could grab raisins five times a day. He had unlimited access to food and water, unlike before where food was scarce and unsure. But contrary to what his new parents expected, Pace's anxiety around food did not lessen. In fact, it increased. Why? Pace's therapist pointed out that Pace still had the same issue. He was still the one responsible for getting his own needs met, even though access was greater. So his foster parents switched it up. Instead of Pace having to rely on himself to get food, his parents created a food schedule. Breakfast at 7 a.m., snack at 10 a.m., lunch at noon, snack at 2, dinner at 5.30. Every day for months, they provided for Pace's needs in a consistent, predictable way. And it was this daily, consistent provision and Pace's small, lived experience with his needs being met every day, physically by his foster parents, that reduced his anxiety. He had a lived set of small experiences that created predictability, which created trust, which created faith, confidence in the food that he hoped for, and assurance that it would be coming even when he couldn't see it yet. If we want our faith to grow in God in the same way that Pace's faith grew in his foster parents, we don't just ask a food insecure child to believe more that his foster parents are good and faithful. Instead, we invest in a small, consistent, attaching practice that provides the basis for our confidence and our assurance. We too need a live set of small interactions that create predictability in our relationship with God that allow for confidence in his goodness and faithfulness to grow. So to move down on this axis of anxiety or fear, the attaching practice that we use is depending on God. So this one is actually here. Sorry about that. Um, so we're going to depend on God to move from afraid down to calm. 
When we depend on God, we give space for him to prove his goodness and faithfulness. Just like Pace had to depend on his parents to provide food for him instead of relying on himself in order to decrease his anxiety, we have to depend on God. We cannot provide for all of our needs. We cannot control the world and make everything okay. And if we live life trying to be the one who takes care of ourselves and others, we will live in fear because that job is too big for us to handle. And we are not meant to shoulder that burden. When we surrender control and make space for God to provide and be faithful, we will begin to amass a lived body of knowledge that provides the basis for our faith, confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we cannot see that lets us feel calm and secure, even when we have yet to see the need met. Now, there are lots of ways that you can try this attaching practice of depending on God, but I want to give you just three practical ideas that you can try. Now, I'm going to give you these ideas, but I only want you to commit to one of them um, because the point is it has to be a practice, which requires doing it habitually over time. It's an investment. So if you commit to doing all three of them, you'll end up doing none of them and then your faith won't grow. So just focus on one. So first idea, you could keep a gratitude journal. This is basically recognizing the ways that God already has provided for you, how he has already been faithful and good to you. It's a retroactive way to depend on him, but it helps focus your mind on the practical evidence of God's faithfulness and goodness in your life. Second idea, you could keep a prayer journal. So depend on God through prayer. Ask him for your needs, just like Jesus said in Matthew 7. Um, and then crucially, keep a record of when he answers those prayers. This will again be evidence of God's faithfulness and goodness to you. And this is the third idea. So this is the stretcher if you want to really practice dependence. Keep a Sabbath. So these other two ideas um, are pretty low risk on your part. You don't really have to give up much of your autonomy or self-reliance in order to practice them. But with Sabbath, you do. You intentionally surrender a consecutive 24 hours during your week where you will not be productive, you will not do anything, you will not provide for yourself, make money, go shopping, do work. It is a huge act of dependence and trust, leaving space for God to come through and provide and keep the world turning and from falling apart without you. Now, if keeping a Sabbath sounds terrifying to you, that might be a good indicator to try it. Um, because you're probably depending too much on yourself. But if it's still too terrifying, I would go ahead and just start with these other two practices to build up your live set of good and faithful interactions with God that give you confidence in what you hope for and faith in what you cannot see, that it will be okay. So that was the first access anxiety and how to practically ground faith and move from um, afraid to calm. Now we're gonna take a look at the second axis, which if you remember was avoidance. And in this one, we want to move from distant to close in our relationship with God. So what are the core beliefs that, about God that underlie these two distant quadrants? We've already seen one of them, the God is not good over here. Um, and of course, if you believe someone is not good, why would you want to be with them? That makes total sense. Um, and the other one in the dismissing avoidant quadrant, the underlying belief is that God is not sufficient. In the same way that embodied real consistent experiences with a parent or caregiver allows us to attach securely to them, we have to do that again here. Faith is not just a belief. The basis of our confidence and assurance is in the small interactions that build up over time with God. 
Here's another example. This is the octopus. Isn't he so cute? <laughs> I've had a thing for octopuses lately. I just think they're super cool and super cute. Um, but anyway, I've been watching this Netflix documentary called My Octopus Teacher. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend. Um, I guess caveat, I have not seen the end because I'm pretty sure she gets eaten by a shark. But don't let that dissuade you from watching the beginning part of it. Um, anyway, it's about a filmmaker who likes to swim in the ocean, and then one day he sees her, the octopus. This is actually the octopus. Um, and he gets this crazy idea. What if I visit her every single day? And he does. This guy goes and visits this one octopus every single day for a year. And initially, the octopus is not about him. He's big, he looks scary like a predator, a gigantic shark, if you will. Um, she hides in her den and camouflages, pretending that he can't see her. But this big, scary guy keeps coming back day after day after day. And about a month in, she starts to change. She starts to come out of her den a little bit. Then she starts to reach out a tentacle. And after about two months of him visiting her literally every single day, the octopus begins to trust and she leaves her den. And then amazing things happen. Like she rides on his hand, she lets him film her hunting, she plays with him, it is beautiful. She has faith in him, faith that he is good and that he won't harm her. And so instead of choosing distance, she's able to get close. But her faith in him does not come out of nothing. She doesn't see him the very first day and be like, you know what? I should just believe that this big dude isn't going to eat me. I should probably get really close to him right here, right now. That's ridiculous. Her faith is not groundless. It's based on a lived set of small interactions that create predictability, which creates trust, which creates faith. And I want to tell you, you are the octopus. <laughs> If you want your attachment to God to grow, if you want to be less distant from him, you have to choose to be with him every single day for weeks and then months and then years. You can't just believe yourself into having a less distant relationship to God. Closeness comes from a lived set of small interactions that create predictability, which creates trust, which creates faith. To move down the axis of avoidance, we choose the attaching practice of being with God. Um, again, these are switched. Sorry about that. <laughs> so being with God helps you go from distant to close. Um, and again, but there are lots of ways to do this, but here are a couple ideas. First idea, be quiet. Take five or 10 minutes a day to turn off your phone, TV, computer, your podcast, your music, whatever noise and stimulation is in your life, your kids. Um, just be quiet. <laughs> God is right here with you, but it's hard to notice that sometimes when our minds are so distracted by all the stimulation and noise. And this quiet can be hard to stomach at first. You're like, but what do I do? But that's the point. You do nothing. You just be. It is companionable silence with God. Second idea, be alone. These could be the same five minutes that you're quiet, but get by yourself. Hang out just with God. You could do this on a walk, on your commute, while you eat breakfast. Be alone with God every day. Remind yourself, I am an octopus. If I want to get closer to God, I need to visit him every single day. 
Now, ultimately, it doesn't matter what the being with actually looks like. The octopus hunted lobsters with the man. The octopus pretended to be a rock with the man. The octopus just swam with the man. The octopus walked on the sand with the man. What matters is the being with and being with every day. Because a secure attachment is a lived set of small interactions that creates predictability, which creates trust, which creates faith. Now, of course, these examples that I've been using to demonstrate the idea of attachment and faith are not pure, perfect for a myriad of reasons. You're probably not actually an octopus. Um, but crucially, an actual attachment. Babies don't have a choice whether or not to attach. My daughter, Catherine, is utterly helpless. She has to depend on me. She has to be with me. She's more mobile now, but initially she wasn't going anywhere unless I physically carried her to a new location. She could not feed herself or care for herself or do anything except cry out to me. Now we are more like babies than we like to admit um, because we also can't actually provide for ourselves or control things or make things okay. But because we are ambulatory and work jobs and speak in complete sentences, we can delude ourselves into feeling self-sufficient. We can choose to not depend on God, to not be with God in a way that an attaching child can't. We can choose to rely on ourselves and be distant if we want to. God does not force us to have faith in him. That's something that we have to choose to make a reality in our own lives by the small, habitual, daily choices of dependence and being with. We are embodied spiritual creatures, and the mundane physical choices we make with our time and our bodies are fundamentally intertwined with our spirituality and our relationship to God. If you want to move from afraid to calm, from distant to close, you have to choose to depend on God. You have to choose to be with God. Because a secure attachment comes from a lived set of small interactions that create predictability, which creates trust, which creates faith. God reminds us in Philippians, keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. And I think that this is why a secure attachment is so crucial, because peace comes from a secure attachment. We like to think we'll feel less stressed or more peaceful if our external, external circumstances are just different. If I had more time, if I was less busy, if I was in a relationship, if my marriage was better, if I was done with school, once my kids go back to school, if COVID was over, if the election was over, if X, Y, Z about my external circumstances changed, then I would be less stressed. I would experience peace. But that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not how attachment works. Paul says to put it all into practice, what you learned and received from me, and then, then the God of peace will be with you. Because these small practices are a list set of small interactions that create predictability, which create trust, which create faith, confidence in what you hope for, and assurance in what you cannot see. That is peace. Deep trust in God's faithfulness and goodness and sufficiency, even when circumstances do not feel trustworthy or good or enough. Because even though you can't see it yet, you know that your father is safe, that he will take care of you, and it will be okay. Jesus as I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give is a gift that the world cannot give. Your circumstances around you cannot give you peace. Only I can do that. So don't be troubled or afraid. Depend on me. Be 
with me, attached to me, and I will keep you safe. One of the greatest gifts that secure attachments give to children is peace. In the midst of dysregulation and chaos in the world in the face of the unknown and the things that they cannot control, children don't have to be afraid because someone bigger than them loves them and is taking care of them and they know in faith that it will be okay. In the middle of the night when Roland runs to me because of a nightmare, my presence tells him he is safe. When Catherine cries and is hungry, she becomes calm and peaceful as soon as she sees me because she knows it's going to be okay. When Aiden is angry and emotional and dysregulated in the world, I hold him to me and I whisper, Mommy is here. Mommy's got you. You're okay. And he stops screaming and becomes calm because he is with me. He is safe. He's securely attached to me. God is with you. God is safe. God wants you to run to him when you're afraid and to experience the deep peace of being with him because he tells you you're okay. I'm right here. I've got you. It's going to be okay. You don't have to be afraid. When you go out to fight your enemies and you face horses and chariots and an army greater than your own, do not be afraid. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is with you. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? Don't be afraid for I am with you. Don't be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and hold you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand for I hold you by your right hand. I, the Lord your God, and I say to you, don't be afraid. I am here to help you. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, says, do not be afraid for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will gather you and your children from east and west. Don't be afraid, he said, for you are very precious to God. Peace, be encouraged, be strong. My spirit remains among you just as I promised you when you came out of Egypt, so do not be afraid. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. And Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. God is good. God is faithful. God is sufficient. But it is faith that allows you to rest in that truth. Faith that allows you to experience the reality of peace. Faith that makes God's room a refuge and a place of safety to you. Don't be afraid. He is with you. It's not just about believing it more. Your faith is not baseless or groundless. It arises from a deep body of built knowledge that you have to choose to invest in. You will not attach to God by accident. And it is only in a secure attachment to God that you will experience the peace that you crave and that he promises. Choose to depend. Choose to be with every day. 
build a lived set of small interactions with God that creates predictability, that creates trust, that creates faith, confidence in what you hope for, and assurance in what you cannot see. Because with God, it is going to be okay. You don't have to be afraid. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness and sufficiency. Um, but just knowing those things about you doesn't change our attachment to you, God. Um, it is only by actually living with you and choosing to depend on you that we can come to embody those and believe that those are actually real to have faith in you, God. So I pray that we invest in those small interactions, God, that we make the choice to depend, that we make the choice to be with you, God, so that we can securely attach to you and not be afraid. Thank you, God, so much for who you are, for your goodness, that you care so deeply for us, Lord. Please help us to be close to you, to be calm in your presence, Lord, to choose to depend and to choose to be with. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.